grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Now one of the side effects we're having to live with in this unique year is disruption of healthy sleep patterns. Uh, not surprising if you think about it. The COVID epidemic has disrupted our, our work life, our home life, and our family time. Financial and job insecurities have increased our anxiety levels. That in turn has affected how well we sleep. Our daytime activities and schedules have been disrupted by the lockdown and restrictions on social interacting. That's affected our ability to get the regular sleep we need. And now on top of that, toss in months of constant election news and it's a wonder we can get any sleep at all. But we're not gonna spend time talking about all the problems a lack of sleep can cause. Things like increased risk of heart, heart disease or kidney disease or high blood pressure, diabetes and stroke. We're not gonna talk about all that because there's another side to that coin. All this scheduled reshuffling has allowed a lot of people to get into the habit of oversleeping. Now, it sounds like that would be a good thing. What's the downside of sleeping in, right? Well, it turns out it's not the blessing it might, you might think it would be. It turns out that sleeping too much can actually decrease metabolism and thereby increase toxin levels in your body. It's also been linked to diabetes, uh, obesity, heart disease, headaches, and back problems. It's kind of a, a Goldilocks thing. Uh, most people's sweet spot is about eight hours, but yours could be six or seven or even nine. You just have to find it and then try to stick with whatever's right for you. Another downside to sleeping too much might be jail time. A would-be burglar named Mark Cooper broke into a bar and restaurant with some friends in Sunderland, England two weeks ago. When officers arrived, they found the till empty and food and liquor missing but not Cooper. I mean, Cooper was there, he wasn't missing. They found him sleeping next to a half-eaten cheesecake. A police spokesman said that this burglary clearly proved to be tiring work for Cooper. It's safe to say he was brought back to the real world with a bump from officers. Uh, the poor guy's already been sentenced to 26 weeks in prison. His fellow burglars, the one who evidently just left him there, uh, are still at large. There's got to be a good story there. You know, Jesus teaches a parable with a real-world impact that's meant to make, wake us up this morning. To understand Jesus' story of the, the ten sleepy bridesmaids, you really have to know a little about marriage in first-century Palestine and, of course, the, the grand Jewish wedding concept. The bride and groom would have been betrothed by <clears throat> their parents. <clears throat> there was no, uh, you know, bachelor TV show or bachelorette. Uh, you didn't get the pick. It was all arranged ahead of time. Uh, once a dowry was agreed upon, uh, the betrothal was announced. At that point, as far as everyone but the bride and groom was concerned, uh, they were as good as legally married. Just legally, though. The ceremony still had to be planned and executed. Even so, it would take a certificate of divorce to, to break it off, even at that early stage. But once that happened, the living quarters had to be constructed so they could move in together. The groom and his father would generally build an addition to the family home, which already housed potentially uh, mom and dad and grandma and grandpa, and brothers, sisters, uh, maybe some extended family. Each family had some semblance of privacy in their own addition, uh, but much of the space was communal and it was shared by everyone. Nobody knew for sure when the marriage would be consummated, only that it would be soon after the new living quarters were finished. 
Uh, it wouldn't have been a long time, probably, just a vague time. Once everything appeared to be in order, the groom and his attendants would make their way to the bride's house at night for the home bringing. A uh, great festive procession of the wedding party back to his uh, family home for the ceremony. Along the way, lookouts were posted to alert bridesmaids who would be positioned somewhere near her family home where they could wait for the call from the groomsmen and then run to lead the procession to her new home. Their job was to bring the lamps to light the way back to where the feasting might go on for as long as seven days. Their lamps, small oil-filled containers with a round hole at one end for the wick, um, were, were uh, uh, hung from poles they carried. So it's sort of like a torch. In Jesus' parable, there are ten virgins, ten uh, maidens or bridesmaids, all waiting for their chance to light the way. They wait, and they wait, and they wait, but somehow the bridegroom has been held up, and he doesn't show as expected. In fact, it's getting so late that they all nod off. Now, just a quick nap, maybe, to, uh, to get ready to enjoy the long night ahead. At midnight comes the cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Now they jump up, light their lamps, and five of the lamps flicker and die. It seems that some of the bridesmaids had left home without checking to see their, uh, the, the oil level since their last lighting. Jesus describes these girls as mori, the same Greek root word from what we, we get our word moron, but it's usually translated more kindly as Jesus puts it as foolish. Of course, they're in a panic and they ask the others to share their oil. Aside from what was already in their lamp, the five wise bridesmaids had carried an extra vessel of oil. They were taking no chances. They planned ahead. Now, they didn't have too much, though. Uh, with the extra containers, they had just what they would need. Uh, there were no street lights in those days, uh, even in the big cities, and so they would have been using their lamps already to move around and get into place. The foolish five asked for oil, but what they get instead is directions. Oh, maybe Target is still open. You better run. Of course, while they're gone, the procession moves on to the groom's house for the ceremony and the reception with his lovely bride in tow. The door is shut behind them, locking out the foolish bridesmaids who had been out scavenging. That's when Jesus makes his point. He says, watch, therefore, for you know neither the time nor the hour. Now, it's hard to know just from this lesson what he's talking about, what hour that might be, until you read the whole thing in context. On the surface, the parable is about the day a groom comes to claim his bride. But this is a parable. It's a story that has a, a spiritual lesson to it. This one's really about Christ, the bridegroom, coming to claim his bride, the church, capital C. That means it's the day that Jesus will return, judgment day. The day all the wise will be separated from all the foolish. The ones who by God's grace have accepted his gift of faith and the ones who haven't. The ones who by faith have always been prepared for, for Christ's return, whenever it happens, sleeping or awake, and the ones who won't be. The story is part of a longer discourse in which Jesus is talking about his eventual return and the believers need to be ready to meet him. We'll catch some more lessons yet this month. The story is a part of a, this whole longer thing then about the end times. And it's interesting that the number of bridesmaids, and the, the word used here is virgins, um, isn't accidental. Ten is one of those numbers in the Bible that indicates completeness. We have ten commandments. Um, ten coins in another parable 
uh, where one is lost and a woman tears her house apart searching for it. Uh, we have 10, uh, there are stories about 10 pounds, 10 cities, 10 servants. Uh, God had to send 10 plagues on Egypt before Pharaoh would finally let his people go. 10 people were needed for a funeral procession. Uh, the 10 bridesmaids represent all the followers of Christ down through the ages. The kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins, Jesus began. And then, before we even hear the story, we learn that five of them were foolish and five of them were wise, and they're about to prove it. But the completeness is already broken. And in the context with the rest of what Jesus has been saying, we get the implication that there are going to be some people who count themselves among believers who are going to be found wanting on that day. It all begins to sound a little ominous, doesn't it? And I think that's just exactly what Jesus wants us to hear. No one back then could ever have imagined a Jewish maiden bringing their lamp without first checking to see if there was oil in it. That just wouldn't have happened. But this is a parable. Jesus wants us to see how foolish we can be in our own preparation for welcoming the heavenly bridegroom. Lamps without oil are all forms of a seemingly Christian life without a substance of that life. The lamps filled with oil are lives filled with a genuine spiritual life, faith uh, that, that, that with its resulting or accompanying works. Uh, the grace of God, the power of Christ, working through the Holy Spirit, being the oil that fuels that flame. Now, we get this far in the story, and you can't help but ask yourselves, can people really be attached or seem to be attached to the church, body of Christ, without having been reborn and renewed? Well, Jesus seems to think that will be the case. I mean, we let anybody in here. We, we have some restrictions about people, about communion, because there's warnings in Scripture against taking communion without recognizing the body of Christ. But we love people that come in that, that are still searching, are still questioning, um, hoping that we hope that they hear God's word. By hearing God's word, he can go to work on their hearts and maybe bring them to faith. Only God can see the heart, but faith demands a response. You know, one others will probably be able to see. Uh, in 2 Timothy 3.5, talking about the last days, Paul's young protege describes those, he says, who will have the appearance of godliness, uh, but deny its power. People who look holy, but inwardly are unbelievers. You know, many of them maybe having been allowed, having allowed themselves to be led astray by others, or led into false uh, religions that only claim to be Christian. There are a lot of religions out there that use Christian language or, or uh, 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 sell themselves as Christian, but we usually can boil it down to their, what they believe about the Trinity, our Trinitarian God, and, and who Jesus really is. Um, that usually separates them out. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, and not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Do we not prophesy in your name, they'll ask? Cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. It's harsh stuff, right? But you know it's true. Now back to the story, because the bridegroom delayed his coming, the bridesmaids fell asleep. All ten of them. To us, you know, we hear them and think, well, they, they just took a little nap. But in the Bible in the ancient church, uh, sleep was often a synonym for death. And the early church believed and hoped for a, a more immediate return of the Lord after his resurrection and ascension. And when that didn't happen, 
and their friends and their family members and their, their fellow believers begin to die away. Uh, they wondered what would happen to those people who died while they were still waiting. Jesus was saying that some people would grow old and die before he returned. Just like the, but just like the bridesmaids, if you go to sleep prepared, then you'll awaken prepared. And if you don't, you won't. Peter tried to explain the delay in terms of God's grace. He said, the Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know, there's no repentance, no changing your mind after suffering the sleep of death in, in this life. On the day the Lord returns, we'll be awakened in the same, in the resurrection, in that same condition spiritually as when we went to sleep. When the bridesmaids were awakened with the cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. They, they woke up, they lit their lamps. And that's when five of them realized their mistake. They hadn't prepared for his arrival. And even though they rushed out and tried to find a dealer to buy some more oil, it was simply too late. And it was impossible for the others to share theirs with them. Martin Luther said that uh, everyone has to do two things for themselves. They have to do their own believing and their own dying. He was saying that you can't get to heaven on someone else's faith. Instead of entering the wedding feast with the door closing behind them, it was slammed in their faces. And no amount of knocking or pleading or begging or pounding was going to open it. That's how Jesus says it'll be on the last day. He's saying in this parable that if you're not prepared by faith ahead of time, there won't be a chance to run out and buy some or borrow somebody else's once the bridegroom appears. On that last day, there will be no unbelievers. Uh, but for a lot of people, that's going to be too late. He says earlier in Matthew that on that day, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He said, on that day, he's saying everyone will believe because everyone will see him. But it will be too late for those not already prepared by the oil of faith God had already offered them. They'd had their chance. Now they were just beating on a locked door. You know, sometimes I think we miss the power of this, mirror, this parable. We, we, we see the story, we hear the story, but we don't see ourselves in the story. We miss the urgency of the moment well, we still have a chance to examine ourselves, to, to look at where we're standing today in relation to where God set us to drip dry from the waters of our baptisms. How far we may have wandered until these days, maybe, maybe we're just going through the spiritual motions. You know, we live in the end times now. This is a time of tribulation. That time began at the cross. But we also live in a time of God's grace. A time when he's only too willing to receive a repentant sinner back into the fold. A time when the, world, the, word, the word is still freely preached in so many places. A time when the door to the kingdom marriage feast is still standing wide open, welcoming everyone who would, by faith alone in Jesus alone, approach and be received. When will it be too late for you? You know, we we're posting our sermons, services online now for our shut-ins and people who uh, maybe because of health conditions can't 
uh, joining us in person for worship, but they're also out there on the internet for anybody to find. People searching, people asking questions, people looking for information, people who stumbled across a lesson like this uh, by accident. And so we, we have to ask, when will it be too late for you? Do you really want to gamble with your eternal soul? Because people do, every day. They allow themselves to be drawn away from the one true faith into all kinds of spiritual smorgasbords, the kinds of things that our faulty reason just loves to embrace. But in just a wink, a jiffy, a shake of a lamb's tail, a blink of an eye, it could suddenly be too late to return. And sure, it's been more than 2,000 years now since Jesus said that he would come back. But what are the odds that it's going to be this afternoon? I don't know. I can tell you it's going to be one day closer than it was yesterday. One day closer to the day when God's free, wonderful, hope-filling, peace-giving grace to sinners will be history. There'll be no second chances, no left-behind story in which you get one more shot, no cars without drivers and planes without pilots. That's fiction based on bad theology of a man named John Darby back in 1830. That had never been part of the church's idea of Christ's return before that, and it still shouldn't be. You probably know people who are walking that fine line between faithful and foolish who are counting on a second chance at entering God's kingdom. The whole concept might make for riveting novels and movies. It's just not supported by God's word. Judgment Day? That'll be no excuse day. Uh, you're pleading, you know, my dog ate my faith. Isn't gonna, only is going to get you off. And the rest of us, uh, we're old enough to know better. Some people might see themselves in that group outside looking in and think it isn't fair not to get a second chance. But our God is a God of second chances and third chances, and fourth and fifth chances through repentance and the forgiveness he offers for Jesus' sake. And that will continue right up until the moment the trumpet sounds, signaling that now it's too late. What's not fair is God's own innocent son being nailed to a cross, having to suffer and die there as payment for all our sins. Good Friday. That's what not fair looks like. Not fair is God offering sinful people forgiveness in the first place. But in spite of being a just God, he's a, a merciful, loving God who wants everyone to come to faith and be saved. He's warning us this morning ahead of time to get our act together before it's too late, to live as if this were the day every day. There's a lot more at stake here than just a, a, a wedding cake at the reception. And the consequences could not only be alarming, but they'll be eternal. Amen. Now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding of your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.